I had a sabbatical in 1976 and I went to Greece and I lived on an island and I worked on a translation with a colleague of the Ajax and we spent I think four months and got through about a hundred lines. <laughs> Every day we'd do five lines and then we'd go back and throw them out the next day and start again. It was just, it was devastating. And so that put me off doing translation for a long time. This is the Mirror of Antiquity, where we see ourselves in the study of the ancient world. I'm Curtis Dozier. Today on the program, an interview with Rachel Kitzinger, who taught classics at Vassar College for 30 years and has directed performances and published translations of several ancient Greek tragedies, both on her own and in collaboration with her husband, the poet Eamon Grennan. Rachel and I talked about what it feels like to take a line of ancient Greek and try to communicate it in English, about what that practice makes you notice about any act of communication, and ultimately, about what it's like to care about something, antiquity to which we have no direct access without interpretation. Welcome. I had a student in a Greek literature and translation class, which was starting with reading the Odyssey, who came up to me at the beginning of the semester very nervous, and he said, you know, we did read the Odyssey in high school, and I had a huge difficulty understanding it and I'm very nervous about making sense of this poem and I said well what translation did you read and he said oh no we didn't read it in translation we read it in the original old English <laughs> because they had used an out of copyright translation a 19th century translation of Homer and he had not absorbed that this was a translation at all and had been completely confused by the language. This has happened in my classes, too, where someone doesn't realize that what we're reading in English has been translated from another language, from another culture, from another world. But how would they know unless someone explained it to them? How would they know unless someone explained it to them that what they read in a book has been transformed in innumerable ways from what the ancient author wrote. In our current culture, especially I think with students, the written word, the printed page, carries a kind of authority that we instinctively feel that there's a kind of solidity and claim to the printed page, even in the digital era, I feel this, or even more in the digital era, I think. So that it's, it's not obvious when you read a translation of a Greek tragedy, for example, that you're reading an interpretation. That's why it's always painful when you assign reading for students who don't know Greek or Latin. It's a terrible situation, really, because I found myself so often pulling rank and saying, if you knew the Greek, you would understand why this line really shouldn't be understood in the way you're understanding it, which is a terrible thing to do to students. And yet, you feel like you 
you have to at least point out to the student that the line that they're taking as equivalent to the Greek is in fact mediated by one person's reading of the Greek and turning that into English. That's the whole problem of translation. It makes us feel like we have access to something from the distant past. But the fact is, we can't access it without going through someone else's interpretation of that past. The English word translation comes from the Latin word, meaning to carry across. The Latin word, in fact, is itself a translation of a Greek word that means to carry across, which comes into English as metaphor. That is, there's a lot more to translation than choosing words in one language to match words in another language. Take the texts of Greek tragedies. Even before we put them into English, they've been carried across the ages by the scribes who copied and recopied the Greek texts. And it's not just the literature that has been transformed. Even the apparently pristine Greek columns you can still see standing in Greece have undergone a process of translation. They've been altered by weather, by looters and graffiti, by the fact that where six once stood, now only two remain, by the fact that the landscape around them looks different than it did in antiquity. Everything we have from the ancient world has been translated in one way or another. We can glimpse how this process of translation transforms the past into something new in Rachel's description of her recent translation of Euripides' play, Medea, which was first produced in Athens in 431 BC. This play begins with Medea discovering that her husband Jason has decided to marry another woman, a local princess, even though he owes all his success in life to Medea, who helped him get the golden fleece and escape her father's wrath at its being stolen. It's a play of intense emotion and human interaction, and how it's translated affects how an audience will understand and feel those emotions. The power of the translator is to decide who Medea will be. But there are many different things she can be, and the burden of the translator is that making her one thing may prevent her from being something else. Right at the beginning of the first speech in the Medea where the nurse comes out on stage all by herself and she's sort of summarizing for the audience the situation that we're entering into as the play begins. She describes Medea and she calls her Medea hedistenos etimasmene, which if I don't like to use the term literal translation because there is no such thing, but if I can be as literal as possible, it means Medea, the wretched or miserable woman in a state of having been, and now the verb, which means to deprive of honor, to deprive of citizenship, to be treated as someone without power. Okay, so I'm going to use the word dishonor just in the literal translation. Medea, the miserable woman in her state of having been dishonored. Okay. So I translated the line, and Medea, miserable in his contempt. And the response from the editors of, to that line was an alternative translation, Medea, miserable, dishonored. 
with the comment, it's not just that he spurns her, he's dishonoring her like a god she wants honor. So to me, this was you know, a, a wonderful example of the difficulties of translating. First of all, the Greek verb has a huge range of meanings, one of which is political, that is to deprive of citizenship or to treat someone as uh, powerless, which is a very important aspect of this play. So here's an example of, of a decision about diction, about a single word, where the cultural connotations of the word in Greek have such a range that there's no single word in English. That, so you're making a choice about which connotation you're going to try to carry through. So that's one aspect of it. Moreover, the word in English, dishonor, feels to me an extremely flat word. Honor in our culture now, in the 21st century in America, has very limited application. I mean, when you think about honor in our culture, there aren't a lot of circumstances where we feel people will die for their honor. <laughs> um, nor do we necessarily associate honor with real acknowledgement by other people of your power. So when the editor says, like a god, she wants honor, she's associating with the notion of honor a demand for the recognition of one's power. And I don't think honor or dishonor in English carries any of that weight anymore. So I really feel this is a very important word right at the beginning of the play to sort of mold our understanding of her Medea's state of mind, and that, that the last thing you want to use is a word that carries nothing emotionally for a contemporary audience. When I chose contempt as a, as a way of trying to capture it, what I was mainly going for was this power relationship between Jason and Medea, which I think is a really important part of the play. And contempt for me does, does convey the way one person can treat another as powerless. You are interpreting when you translate. So when the editor says, like a god, she wants honor, that is a very distinct interpretation of this character, which would fashion, and this is right at the beginning of the play, it would fashion the whole way you would translate this character throughout the play. And I don't agree fully with that interpretation. And so translations have to be repeated again and again and again, because every single translation that we read is one or two people's interpretation of a, of a play or a text, a poem, whatever. It's an partial interpretation, it's inadequate, and you have to keep doing it. You have to keep producing translations because of the nature of translation as, an, as a always a failure. The difficulty of translating even one significant word makes you see why she would say this. 
It's not that it's impossible to represent what Euripides wrote. It's that it's impossible to represent everything that Euripides could have meant. I think Rachel thinks her translation is a good one. But she also knows there could be, indeed will be, other translations that make very different choices than she has made, but that will also be good, and in some sense true to what Euripides wrote. Euripides packed so many potential interpretations into his play, including interpretations that contradict each other. But the translator has to make her choices. The difficulty of this choice goes far beyond choosing English words to represent Greek words, because there is so much more to an ancient play than the words the poet wrote. These plays were performed by actors on stage before an audience and are meant to be performed, not read in a book. The way an actor reads his lines can change what they mean. The way the actors interact physically on stage can change what we understand about the story. At least with the words, we have something like a script from antiquity to work with. When it comes to how any particular play was actually staged or interpreted, we have very little evidence. The translator almost has to make all of this up. My PhD was really about how the language of Sophocles lends itself to the portrayal of character on stage. And so what kind of linguistic habits and stylistic traits you can detect in different characters in a play, since apparently there's not much difference in the language of characters in the, in the play. But in fact, if you look at, I think, the right kinds of things, you can actually see how the language would give an actor an, a, an opportunity to create a character that's distinct from the other characters. Things like Creon, for example, in the Antigone, who uses a huge number of aphoristic sayings, many more than any of the other characters. So things like that, things like sentence structure, which can vary from character to character, sound effects of particular lines that would allow a character to express an emotion through the sound, that kind of thing. That's what my dissertation was about. And then I decided I had to test it by actually doing a production in Greek to see if what I thought functioned as a, a way of an individual being able to express what was there for the character was actually embedded in the language. So I started doing productions and we did them in Greek and they worked very well and the audience didn't know Greek, but inevitably at some point when sort of thinks it would be great to do this in English as well. They were student productions. And these were all students who were studying Greek. And so my main goal really was to have them experience as best they could Greek, the Greek language and Greek poetry as a living thing coming out of their mouths. So if that was my main goal, then doing it in Greek was a no-brainer. But I was, and I, I really felt, well, some of the audience are going to be bored out of their minds and some of them are going to be interested and we'll just see. But it turned out, I think for the audience, it was a very powerful experience of strangeness, which was also somehow comprehensible to them. So... Most of them had read the play in English, so it wasn't as if they had no idea what was going on. But they 
had to strain to try to understand what was happening because they couldn't understand the language, but at the same time they could feel the power and the beauty of the language and the way the language allowed them to know at least some basic emotional truths about what was happening on the stage. So, you know, all the subtlety and the difficulty and the of the of the text was lost to them, but the basic outlines of the actors' emotions and the choral songs and what they were trying to convey was available and people responded to that feeling. So even when an audience can't understand the words of a play, it is still comprehensible to them. That's how significant the other parts of the play are. The costumes, the blocking, the sets, the intonation of the actors' voices. The performers themselves are translators and interpreters of the ancient Greek text. The audience too, if you think about it. So translation is always a collaboration, or at least a group effort. And there is something beautiful about that collaboration, which has so much potential. But for the translator, it is also painful, because attempting to translate brings you face to face with the limitations of what it will be possible for you to achieve. I taught a course several times in translation where I focused on lyric poetry. Students had to come up with polished translations of the poems they'd read. It's so hard to get students really to focus on details of the language when they're just reading for class, so to speak, and if they have to translate into an English that they were willing to read to others, it really made them think about the language in a different way. For students, that process of really trying to see what is there before they let it go to produce an English translation was a, it was a great didactic tool, not only in having them really look very closely at those elements of the Greek, but also of that habit of have, recognizing that it, you can't bring it over, and so you have to go through this painful process of accepting failure. Pound called translating a thankless and desolate undertaking, and I totally agree with that. We could also perhaps add that it's an impossible act, because no two languages and the ways of thinking and viewing the world that they encode are going to line up in a simple, easy way. You can go online and find all kinds of lists of words in other languages that have no English equivalent. But there's even more to it than that. What if the whole structure and expressive tradition of your language doesn't line up with the original? Then what? English outside of Shakespeare, and certainly that too is becoming an ancient and unknown form, <laughs> um, doesn't have poetic language that is both not colloquial and vigorous. It's exciting, muscular, 
spoken language that is not colloquial language. We have no, we don't have a tradition of that in the theater, and that's really what the level of Greek tragic language is. It's not colloquial language. It's not the language that everybody spoke in the streets, but it is familiar to the audience because it's a well-developed kind of poetic language that is not alienating in its inf- unfamiliarity or in its non-colloquial nature. We don't have an equivalent of that in English, so one is always struggling to find something that's idiomatic but not colloquial. Language that seems within a familiar range of what you know English can do and that is not archaic and that Eamon and I call it muscle. It has, it has vigor, it has energy, without drawing on the easiest form of source of energy, which is colloquial speech. Right? That tonal element, which then has to be consistent across the entire text, is probably the biggest challenge. Simply struggling with individual words to find an English equivalent that captures what you think that word is doing in the context of the poem or the play or the text. And struggling, therefore, at the level of diction with all the cultural baggage that individual words can carry. Just at that level, what you're confronting is the vast cultural gap between the language you're using and you use in your life with the language you're reading. That vast gap means that the translator has to consider not only all the cultural assumptions that the original word activated in antiquity, but all those that the word she chooses in English will activate as well. And of course, words fit into a culture in different ways at different times. History and technology can change what a word means. A tweet used to be something only a bird made, and it probably still is to someone over a certain age. So different people are going to have different associations with different words. And the translator somehow has to try to anticipate this. Rachel had to confront this when translating Sophocles' last play, Oedipus at Colonus, which tells the story of what happened to Oedipus after he blinded himself and went into exile from Thebes. In the course of the play, this cursed man who murdered his father and married his mother is redeemed in death. In the Oedipus at Colonus, which is about Oedipus in his very old age, there are several times in the play where he's referred to with the noun soter, which uh, an unthinking translator would translate as savior. And there's absolutely no way, I think, that you can use the word savior in an English translation to translate that word because there is no way that it would not raise Christian connotations to the word and that's totally inappropriate in my view unless you know you were doing a translation in which you wanted people to see the parallels between Oedipus and the Christ figure then you could use it but if that's not something you want to bring into the translation, then you, you can't use that word. So judging what the connotations will be for the audience reading the text, 
that too is sort of impossible because given the range of cultural backgrounds of the people who are going to be reading the translations, you can't actually know what the connotations are of the words that are going to strike a particular reader. One has to be aware all the time that a word is carrying a weight for me as I say it that may not be the same weight that it carries for you or may have an actually very different weight for you. It's, it's something that is a sort of fundamental building block to the way we communicate with each other. I, I can give you an example of that because I was just in Israel and there was a very interesting interview I had at the airport with an agent from El Al. She was asking me about my history in relation to the state of Israel and I said, well, my grandmother emigrated to Palestine in 1938 and she immediately drew up short and said, why do you call it Palestine? And I said, well, I deliberately did that because the state of Israel did not exist in 1938. So it's historically accurate to call it Palestine. But so there was an exchange, you know, a very clearly weighted word where sort of historical context made the word appropriate to use in one way, but knowing how she would read the word and hear it might have dictated my not using that word. So you're not only having to choose an English word or words to somehow carry some of the connotation of the Greek word that works in a contemporary context, but you also have to then choose English words that work poetically. So you have to think about sound and rhythm, which is of course in a feature of the Greek poem, but uh, it's a whole other question in, in English. The meter of what we call the episodes or the exchanges among actors is called iambic trimeter, and it, the Greeks believed, was the closest verse meter to spoken language. So we would, I think in English, also feel that an iambic rhythm makes sense for that kind of verse. But in Greek, whereas in English we would understand an iambic line by hearing stress, in Greek it's understood through the actual time that a syllable takes to be spoken. So it's an alternation in its simplest form, a short syllable followed by a long syllable, and that means a duration of time that's about one to two. And so what you're hearing when you hear the actors exchange um, lines is something like da 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 da. Now there's huge variation in that, and there are pauses, and there's all sorts of exchanges that you can do. So not every line is like that, but that's the rhythm, the basic rhythm of iambic trimeter. The meters of choruses have 
very variable metric units. So the, the length of the metric unit is very variable and also the rhythms that can appear in those metric units is very variable. So it's a very complicated metrical system which we have tried to codify, but in fact the best thing I think we can do truly to understand how these work is to see what variations in patterns of these short and long syllables are to the Greek ear compatible. So there's some rhythms that you always find in the company of other rhythms. So you can sort of see how the poet is building a vocabulary of rhythm with variation in it and would find the introduction of a different kind of rhythm wholly offensive to the ear. In our normal patterns of speech and the way we think about how we talk, we don't really consciously think about rhythm. So it's another way of coming at, a, at an angle that's unfamiliar at a language that allows you to discover a whole landscape of the language which is both important because of what it tells you about what someone's saying but also and how they're saying it but also is in itself pleasing um, it's aesthetically pleasing I notice it a lot when actually I'm teaching in the classroom and I can tell by the rhythm of the way someone is talking whether they're searching for an answer and need to be given silence so that they can develop it or whether they're speaking without thinking and are just filling the air with their sound <laughs> whether they're very insecure and or very assertive. All of those features that a teacher has to be alert to in the classroom can be if you're if you think about the rhythm of the way a student is talking can be very telling. The translator has to examine so much in the ancient texts. The words, the sounds, the rhythms, the cultural background. She also has to imagine what an actor might be able to do with her lines what the play might look like on stage or in the mind's eye of a reader. For so much of this, the ancient texts give almost no guidance. There are no stage directions in, in the texts that, we have, that have survived, except there are indications when a new character has come onto the stage, the text itself will indicate usually, that that person has now entered the stage through either the chorus or a character saying, oh look, here is. <laughs> and that's partly the necessity in, in the conventions of Greek theater because all these characters are masked and you'd have no way of knowing who this is unless the person is identified. Whatever stage directions are there in the ancient text are there as part of what people are saying to each other. There are no other stage directions, and so depending on how much you want your translation to be an interpretation, you can do a huge amount of interpreting with stage directions. It's another tool that a translator can have where there's nothing to guide you. That's something that different translations differ on enormously. So some people 
don't put any stage directions in except minimal exit enter and others really do shape the reader's understanding of what's happening on the stage through stage directions. So far we've been assuming that the translator takes what an ancient writer wrote and puts it into English. This process is very difficult and it is one that transforms the ancient text into something new. Translations don't give us access to the past. They give us a representation of the past, filtered through the translator's interpretation of it. But the fact is, even if you know ancient Greek, you don't have unfiltered access to what Euripides or Sophocles wrote. Your text is a copy of a copy of a copy that was made by hand because there were no printing presses until two millennia after Sophocles lived. And those copies aren't always the best copies but just the ones that happen to survive the ravages of time. Inevitably, those copying the text make errors and miss a word or even a letter. Sometimes a later person copying the text corrects what looks to him like an error, and then there's a new word in the text. The different manuscripts that survive always differ with each other, and there's no guarantee that any particular word is actually the word that Sophocles wrote. It's like a game of telephone across 2,000 years. Sometimes when different versions of the Greek text survive, it's relatively easy to choose which one Sophocles probably wrote. One choice is ungrammatical, or uses a form of a word that, as far as we know, didn't exist in Sophocles' time. But sometimes, different versions survive that are both grammatically correct, both plausible linguistically, but that produce a radically different scene. There's an example of a line like this in Sophocles' play about the end of the life of the hero Heracles his Trachinii, or Women of Trachis. There's a very strange ending to the play, The Women of Trachis, and I, I won't summarize the plot because it's very complicated, but I think the, the issue is very clear. So at the very end of the play, the chorus addresses a figure that they call Parthene, which means young girl, in the singular. So there's the question, who are they talking to? So the chorus is a group of young women. So in that case, they would be addressing themselves in the singular, which is not impossible, but it's pretty unlikely. The only other possible addressee of the line is to the figure of Ailey, who in the play has said not one word, and who has disappeared into the house, and we have no evidence that she's come out again to be addressed. So there's that problem, and they say one of two things, depending on which reading of the, of the manuscript that you think is more authoritative. They either say, do not be left behind in the house, or do not go away from the house. And it's actually, a, a, a change of one letter. So it's either epi in the house or ap, apo, away from the house. There are two good manuscript traditions that differ in how they write these, this line. And it's, you can't say that this manuscript is a better authority than this manuscript for this line. So what does a translator do with, with a question of who is this line being spoken to and what is the line saying? 
when the, in fact the difference between saying do not be left behind in this house and do not go away from the house is a radical difference that would affect what we see at the end of the play. And what we see at the end of the play, it, it's very important to, to knowing how we are supposed to read the play. So here, as a translator, you simply make choices based on how you want to interpret the play. It's, it's the clearest example of a translator interpreting, and interpreting without any authority except your own instinct about what Sophocles wants the audience to see at the end of the play. I chose to have the chorus at the end of the play address Eile, that she has come back out of the palace silently and unacknowledged, that she's standing there, that the chorus turns to her and tells her that she should not stay in the house, that she should go with the dying Heracles and her future husband, Hylas, up to the mountain where they're going to build a pyre and burn Heracles on the pyre. The play is about how male and female worlds don't intersect at all. And to me, in the way Sophocles functions, he always opens a door. And to me, the idea that Hylas and Iole, this next generation of man and wife, might have a different future. It can only be captured if you understand that Ailey leaves the house, which has been a fatal for the previous uh, wife, leaves the house, goes with the men up to the mountain to open a different kind of future for them. I do not feel that translating is the way to discuss or even make people aware of all the interpretive knots and difficulties that a scholar struggles with all the time. That's not the role of a translation. The translation is to let people who can't read the Greek and know very little about this culture to be excited by what they're reading, and to be moved by it, and to feel this is something extraordinary. One of the mistakes classicists and any scholar makes is to try to control or lay claim to or sort of exert what I consider a kind of imperialistic claim to the literature and the, and the cultures that we study. Sometimes I feel like scholars goal is to take possession of what they're studying and I feel it's much more important to recognize, understand as best you can, acknowledge what it is you're studying but then know that in translating it either through scholarship or through translation you you are you are letting go of it. You are interpreting in your own terms, but you're not possessing. I can feel that instinctively the way a Greek 
line of verse works in sound, in rhythm, in sort of semantic force. And then I, as I said before, I have to let that go because I know that cannot be brought through as it is into English. It has to be transformed. And in that bridging from the one language to the other, what you experience is the huge gap. So you can know as best you can what you think Sophocles is doing in a line and feel as if, yeah, I get this. And you still at the same time have to say, what will come through in the English is a huge distance from what was I see there in the Greek. That ability to really take hold of something and then realize it's not yours, that you have to let it go in order to come to something that is yours, if that makes any sense to you. It feels like a very important life lesson. I mean, I've certainly experienced that hugely, for example, in relation to raising a child, you know. <laughs> it's important because, I mean, I think it's important in life. I think that you just have to accept that loss is a huge part of life, period. I mean, I really do think that it's an exercise, a very particular exercise in knowing what is true of many other aspects of life, that loss is what living is about in some way. People often say, oh, it's lost in translation. But that phrase doesn't apply to the classical past. It's not the act of translation that occasions the loss. It was already irrevocably lost, whether we translated it or not. The paradox of antiquity is that translation feels like the only way we have to preserve it. Yet the act of translation itself is what makes us most aware of the loss that makes us seek preservation in the first place. This is the desolation that Pound was referring to. That in order to preserve, we must confront the impossibility of recovering what is lost. It's both beautiful and painful at the same time. But for the most part, we, the readers, only see the beauty. We get to see antiquity transformed again and again into something new. The translator is the one who protects us from the pain of that loss. After I'd come to Vassar and after I'd met Eamon, who's a poet, we were approached actually by the Oxford New Translations of Greek Tragedy series, which combines a classicist and a poet, and that was a fascinating idea. And when they offered the Oedipus at Colonus, I just couldn't resist that challenge. He doesn't know Greek, so the roles were initially pretty clearly defined. He was the master of the English language, and I was thinking about what the Greek we were trying to carry over from the Greek into the English. 
when you sit down to do an impossible task with someone else, it's a recipe for disagreement and difference and frustration and anger. But in fact, we've done remarkably well, I think, uh, in the process, partly because we have a very clear system where I produce a literal translation of the play to start with, where I may try to keep some of the Greek word order if I think it's important, even though it makes gobbledygook of the English. The habits of Greek, the way, for example, the most obvious word order doesn't function the same way English does, means that you're constantly letting go in the Greek, noticing and then letting go in the Greek of effects created by juxtaposition of words that are free of the demands of word order to create meaning. I may give a number of different English words to translate a single Greek word to try to give him a sense of the range that I think is important to think about. And then he takes that and he goes off and he comes back with the first hundred lines in a English version that he is not polished, but it's on the way to being what he wants. And then we sit down and we talk about what's missing, what I think is it go, takes us in the wrong direction, where I think he's missed something, where he's really caught something. So we talk about the whole thing and then he goes off and does another version. And then at a certain point we let that go and we go on to the next section. And so it's a, it's very clear that his role is to perfect as best he can the English, that, it, that he make it alive and muscular and readable and pleasing to the ear. And my role is to make sure that that English conveys what I want conveyed about the play. I think the fact that one of us is in charge, so to speak, of what the Greek says, and one of us is in charge of making the English as, as strong as he can, it frees him, because he knows I'm the watchdog, and he's not as aware of what we're losing, except in as much as I make him aware of that. He knows in theory that we're losing a huge amount, but he, he's not from moment to moment aware of what we're losing. So I think it does help. It allows him, for one thing, to use a lot of other associations that are irrelevant to the play, to the English he produces. So he knows Shakespeare very well, and so very often one can detect in the English that he's producing echoes of Shakespearean tragedy. I think if he were intensely aware of the Greek, that wouldn't work, but it, it works for him as a model that actually produces some wonderful lines. And also it's just, it's less burdensome, you know. He's not constantly saying to himself, no, this isn't right. He can feel as if this is right because the English is of the quality he wants it to be. And I can never feel that. I can never feel that. Rachel Kitzinger's translations of Euripides' Medea, Hippolytus, and Alcestis were published by Modern Library in 2016.
The translation of Sophocles' Oedipus at Colonus that she did with Eamon Grennan was published by Oxford in 2005. She and Eamon are working on a new translation of Sophocles' Trachiniae. In 2008, she published A Dance of Words, an analysis of the choruses of Sophocles' Antigone and Philoctetes. You can find a list of these translations and other books on our website, mirrorofantiquity.com. The Mirror of Antiquity is produced by me, Curtis Dozier, and Lucy Rosenthal, with the support of the Vassar College Department of Greek and Roman Studies and Academic Computing Services. Our recording engineer is Boehner Bailey. Emma Schulte designed our logo. Visit us at our webpage, mirrorofantiquity.com, or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Mirror Antiquity. If you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with your friends on social media. Thanks for listening.